0: Well, take your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Genesis. Today we're in Genesis chapter 27. We'll begin looking at verse 41 and going on into chapter 28 through verse 9. And we're in a series called A Journey with Jacob, looking at Jacob, also oftentimes his brother Esau, his parents Isaac and Rebekah as they interact as well. And today we find ourselves in Genesis 27 starting at verse 41. So, would you please stand in honor of God's Word as it's read? And before I read, would you pray with me the prayer on the screen? Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Amen. Genesis chapter 27, beginning at verse 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban and Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I am disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among these women of this land, from the Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living." So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padam Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padam Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padam Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padam Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So, he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Naboth, and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Amen. You may be seated. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a find, catch me a catch. Matchmaker, matchmaker, look through your book and make me a perfect match. Those are the lyrics from one of the songs in Fiddler on the Roof, but it's it's the desire of many a heart to find the perfect match. And today God wants to talk to us about finding a spouse. He wants us to look at the trajection of Esau's life, to look at the trajection of Jacob's life, and to look at the trajection of our lives, but also, for those of us who are married, the lives of our children or grandchildren, or even great-grandchildren. And so today, we're going to look at where did Esau look for a spouse, where did Jacob look for a spouse, and where should a Christian today look for a spouse? So, let's start with Esau. Now, in this passage, we didn't read the entire section. Last week, we had started off looking at how Jacob, under his mother's influence, stole the blessing from Esau. And now, in this passage, we discover that Esau, he is hot with anger. He is furious, and he is consoling himself Since he's lost his father's blessing, he's consoling himself with the idea that after his father passes away, he will kill his brother Jacob. Of course, Rebecca hears about this. Rebecca, that's her favorite son. Um, Isaac's favorite child is Esau, and she determines that she needs to save her son's life. And so she comes up with a plan to have him go to her family's house where he can look for a spouse, but also allow for the anger to subside, and things to kind of cool down given enough time. So that's where, we are. that's where we pick up this week, having the blessing stolen, Esau's blessing stolen by Jacob. The issue, though, that we need to realize is the broader context that this is set in. And to do that, you have to go back to the beginning, or maybe I should say the end of chapter 26. So if you look at your Bibles... You'll notice chapter 26, uh, we did not preach on that. It deals with Isaac and Abimelech, and we're looking at Jacob's life, so I did not preach on that passage there, but it's interesting where the chapter break comes in because really if if I… I wasn't asked where the chapter should break, but if I were to put the chapter break, I would have put it at the end of chapter 26 right before verse 34, and I would have started chapter 27 there. Now realize when they wrote the Bible, it was written without chapters and verses. The church added those years later to help us find our way around. So that way we could know what verses we were talking about. But let's look at verse 34 of chapter 26. It says, When Esau was forty years old, he married Judith, daughter of Barai the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So here we have Esau's marriage. Did you notice that's before the stealing of the blessing and then Rebekah coming up with a plan for Jacob to flee? And did you notice where our passage ended today? So if you go to chapter 28, down to verse 6, it says, Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padamirim to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Patamirim. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father. Notice that's going back to verse 34 of chapter 26, where he married two women who were of a Canaanite background. And so, in verse 9 of chapter 28, it says, "...so he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth, the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives you already had." And what you don't realize without reading all of it together is that in this section Esau's marriage is a bookend at one end of the section and his marriages are the bookend at the other end of the section. And everything else happens in between, but it's Esau's marriages that function as the bookends. And so, we discover that Esau, he's married. In fact, by the end of this passage he has 3 wives. And you'll notice in Scripture, scripture you'll find polygamy in Scripture. You'll never find it um, encouraged, nor will you find it having positive consequences as a result of it. But it does exist in Scripture and in ancient times. And so, the first question we want to ask is, where does Esau look for a spouse, this person whose marriages are on both ends of the broader section and I want you to see just two simple things. Esau, the first is this. Esau looks outside of the family's blessing. He looks for a spouse outside of the family's blessing, his mom and dad's blessing. It reminds me of a story told by James Dobson. Dobson uh, tells a, a story about a young man who met a wonderful, beautiful, smart, intelligent young lady, and he was head over heels for her. And they started dating and and things were going well, and finally he decided it's time to bring her home and introduce her to mom and dad, because I think this might be the one. And so he brought her home, and lo and behold, mom hated her, could not stand her. And he thought, oh, this is not good. He said, what are we going to do come Christmas time, family birthdays, different get-togethers, our family reunion in the summer, if mom can't stand her? And so he decided to, to break off the relationship, and he stopped dating her. Eventually, he met another girl, started dating her, and he thought, you know, this girl, she's worth marrying. And so came time to bring her home, brought her home. Mom couldn't stand her either. She always could find something wrong with her. And he thought, this, is, this isn't going to work. So he broke that off. He met a third girl, started dating her, came time to bring her home. Same thing happened. Three times in a row, didn't matter who he brought home, the girl wasn't good enough for his mom. Well, he broke off those, those three relationships. Eventually, he met a fourth girl, and he thought, this is perfect. He said, this girl is just like my mother. He said, She has the same sense of humor as my mother. She even kind of looks like my mother. She eats her food the same way as my mother eats it. She likes the same food my mother likes to eat. Said she is just like my mom. They even have the same favorite TV shows. There is no way that my mom will not like this girl. And so the time came after several days to bring her home and introduce her to his mom. And uh, she came home, introduced her, and lo and behold, he was right. His mom loved her. His dad hated her and couldn't stand her. (laughs) So then he wasn't sure what to do. Well, what you discover in this passage is that Esau has found two women that his parents both dislike. He's found two women who, they come from the larger category of being Canaanites, and They are a source of grief. If you go back to chapter 26, verse 35, it says they were a source of grief to Isaac and to Rebekah. They were outside of his mom and dad's blessing. In fact, in chapter 27, verse 46, Rebekah puts it this way. She talks to Isaac. She says, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. And those are Esau's wives. They're Hittites, which is under the broader category of Canaanites. So you might hear me use either term. And in chapter 28, verse 8, Esau realizes how displeasing the Canaanite women were. And you'll notice in verse 8 there, it says to his father. He isn't worried about his mom. Remember, Esau plays the dad. It's Jacob that plays the mom. So, he's worried about dad, and he finds out that his wives are even displeasing to his father in verse 8. And what a displeasure they were. He is outside his parents' blessing. In fact, you could even go back farther than that. You could go back to his grandfather, Abraham. If you went back to chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, Abraham tells his chief servant when it's time for Isaac to find a spouse, he tells his chief servant, I want... You to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife from my son Isaac. It's interesting. You wonder, what do, what do mom and dad, what does grandpa have against the Canaanite women, or in this case more, case, more specifically, the Hittites, who are that particular group of Canaanite What do they have against it? Do they not like their, their sense of humor? Is it something like maybe it's their dialect or uh, their accent they speak with? What do they not like? Now, realize, I think there's actually a spiritual reason why Abraham and Isaac find the Canaanite women, so displeasing. And echoes back to a verse in chapter 15, verse 16, where it says, In the fourth year your descendants, this is to Abraham. This is the grandfather of Esau. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here to this promised land the Can- of Canaan. For the sin of the Amorites, which is another group of Canaanites, has not yet reached its full measure. Anyone who lives within the land of Canaan is a Canaanite. So one of those groups is the Amorites. And I read the, some of you have, you know, NIV or a different translation, but you have study Bibles with the little notes at the bottom, and I read the little note under that verse, and it describes the people that lived in Canaan. It says, just how sinful the Canaanite religious practices were is now known from archaeological artifacts and from their own epic literature. Discovered at Rosh Shamra, on the north Syrian coast, their worship was polytheistic. Remember, Abraham was called to worship one god included child sacrifice, idolatry, religious prostitution, and divination. Could it be that it is the religious, the pagan worship practices that make these Hittite women such a stench to Isaac and Rebekah? We don't know for sure, but what we do know is this, that for whatever the reason, that Esau has chosen women outside of his parents' blessing. And he's married two women outside of their blessing. But he also looks somewhere else for a spouse. Esau looks outside the covenant promise. So he looks outside his family's blessing. He also looks outside the covenant promise. Remember, a promise was made to Abraham that he would dwell in the land and have many descendants. That promise is repeated to his son, Isaac. And then we find here, Chapter 28, verse 9, it says, so he went to, do you see the next name there? Who does Esau go to? When he finds out his first two wives are a stench to his parents and that they are a source of displeasure to them, so he says, okay, I'm going to marry a third woman, and maybe this woman will make mom and dad happy. This woman comes from the family of whom? Ishmael. Now, no doubt Ishmael is a son of Abraham, but Ishmael is not the child of promise. So, Esau now chooses a spouse, but this spouse is outside of the covenant promise because God had said to Abraham, if we were to go back and look that up in chapter 17, God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will become the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but Your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Esau chooses his third wife outside of the covenant promise. It just the promise seems to just totally miss him; goes over his head. He doesn't realize that his way of life is outside of God's ultimate promises. He sold his birthright two weeks ago. We looked at that. He's lost his blessing, and now he's looking for a spouse among the descendants of Ishmael. So he looks in two places, outside the family's blessing, outside of the covenant promise. So let me ask you this. Where does Jacob look for a spouse? Where does Jacob look for a spouse. Now, you'll notice this. As we go down the story, you're going to find out, even though he might look in better places, um, he has problems in his marriage, as you will find. And so, uh, there's not a guarantee that he's going to get everything right. But he does get two things right. You'll notice that Jacob looks within the family's blessing. He looks within his parents' blessing. In chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, it says this, So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman, Go at once to Patamirim, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Go back to your mother's family. Look for a spouse there. Avoid these Canaanite women and their wicked pagan practices. He seeks his father's blessing has both the support of his mother and his father. He looks within their blessing for a spouse. Secondly, Jacob looks within the covenant promise. It's by no accident that Isaac tells his son and repeats in shortened form the promise made to Abraham. He says to him, May God, in verse 3 of chapter 28, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May He give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien the land God gave to Abraham. He was sending his son away, but with the hope that his son would come back and be a recipient of the covenant promise that was originally given to Abraham. And so, Jacob is going to go look for a spouse. We'll read those stories later as we work through the passages. He's going to look for a spouse, but this time the spouse is within the family's blessing. The spouse was within the covenant promise that was given to Abraham. So, that leads me to one simple question for us. Where should a Christian look for a spouse? Where should a Christian look for a spouse? And I think the answers are the same. Christians should look within their family's blessing. Now, you'll notice when I say they should look, and my notes actually put that in quotation marks. I realize that there are many families that are broken, there are families whose moms and dads don't necessarily desire what is best, nor what is biblical for their children, but in an ideal world where families are seeking to honor God and to follow His will, then hopefully a child can have mom and dad's blessing and guidance as they look for a spouse. And we see that in Scripture, don't we? Isn't that one of the implications in the Ten Commandments when it says, honor your father and mother That if we have good and godly, wise parents, that we would seek to honor them in our choice of spouse. In the book of Proverbs chapter 13, verse 13, it says, a wise son heeds his father's instruction. In Proverbs 23, 22, it says, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother. If we have good, godly parents, then we should value their blessing and input in the choice of a spouse. Christians should look within their family's blessing. Of course, the second point is true as well. Christians must, now notice that different word, they should because we live in a fallen world, not every parent will be helpful. Not every parent will seek their child's best. But Christians must look within the covenant promise. You might say, well, pastor, what does that mean, the covenant promise? We have the covenant of promise in the Old Testament with Abraham, but as we come to the New Testament, it means that Christians are called in Scripture to look for a spouse to marry another Christian. Earlier in the service, Dan read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where it says about a woman, if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. You marry anyone you wish, but he must belong to the Lord. Christians are to marry someone who is also a Christian. Sometimes we also include 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where it says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And that's really a broader passage talking about more than just marriage, but obviously it includes marriage. Now, let me just pause. Some of you are thinking, Well, I'm married and my spouse isn't a believer. And you need to know that God, He actually speaks directly to that in 1 Corinthians and says, Love your spouse, cherish your spouse, and you can be a source of blessing to your spouse. And God can work through you and make his salvation known through you. So God is pleased for you to stay in that marriage. But if you're not married and you have the choice of who to marry, then God says, then you look for another Christian to marry. Look for someone else who is a Christian. And so, the point is really simple. Faith must, and family should, affirm a spouse. Faith must, our Christian faith must, that is a requirement in Scripture, and family should, assuming there's a godly family with good input and loving, caring response, should affirm a spouse. So, what does that look like in everyday life? Well, let me give you some applications. The first is this. Make the Christian faith non-negotiable, not only in marriage, but in dating. Now, I realize one is this message probably at this point has the most application to those who are young. You're not married yet. You're looking forward to that day. You need to understand God has a desire for your life that you will grow up to marry a Christian. And that means when you get started dating, that you should probably take off the list, anyone who isn't a Christian. Choose that you will build your relationship with someone who wants to follow Jesus Christ. But it's not just for young people who aren't married. The fact is we have people in church who are divorced, who may remarry. We have people, I have had people in my church over the years in ministry who are in their mid-80s who they were widows or widowers and they remarried. And you need to understand, it doesn't matter what the age is, God's desire for you is that if you are a Christian, that you marry a Christian. And you might wonder, well, why should we do that? I've seen an illustration used before in which they they make a triangle, all right? And if if you have a triangle, they said, imagine on a triangle that God is at the top of the triangle. Imagine at the points of the triangle that, that the spouse, the wife is at one point, the husband is at another point. They said, if both spouses, if their greatest objective in life is to glorify and to honor Jesus Christ, then they will always be moving towards the same point. If God is at the top of the triangle and their goal is to always draw nearer to God and to please Him, then a husband and wife will always be pulling in the same direction. Even if they see things somewhat differently, they will agree on the ultimate goal that God is to be glorified. And so I encourage you, and Scripture requires you to marry another Christian. So in the Christian faith, it's make it a non-negotiable that you will marry, but also date. Only Christians. Also, a way to apply it is to listen to the godly counsel, especially from parents. Now, I know sometimes we don't want to listen to what mom and dad say, and we think that we know better than them. But um, believe it or not, they've been down a road and they've seen more. And when when you have good and godly parents, and they have a warning for you, or a caution, or they have just advice to give you, it's worth listening to that to hear what they have to say, to listen to their wisdom, because they may say things that you don't see. I can remember years ago when I was in high school, um, sitting in a class, in fact, I told you the story about a math teacher I had had um, several weeks ago when we were in the book of Hebrews. I told you about a math teacher I had had who um, sadly had chosen to to pursue a girl who had just graduated from the school, even though he was married and had a one-year-old child at home. And so he began... um, pursuing this 18-year-old woman and, and trying to get uh, to date her and leaving his wife and kids behind. I attended a Christian school. When that became known in public, he was dismissed instantly from the school and from his position there. And I'd shared with you several weeks ago, we were talking about one of those tough theological passages. I'd shared with you how one of my classmates uh, was uh, reflecting on that situation and had said that this, this teacher uh, from her point of view, must have never been a Christian. And I I sat there thinking, well, that's interesting, because some of the people were saying, boy, he's lost his salvation, and others were saying, oh, he never really was a Christian. Now, truth be told, I think Christians can fall into sin. I have every hope. I don't know what happened to that teacher. I have every hope that he repented of his sin, went back to his wife and child, and that their marriage was restored and is healthy and that he's walking with the Lord today. But as I thought about that experience, it reminded me of another comment made by my English teacher. My English teacher, one day in class, she said this, in response to that, she said, you know what? She said, I always thought he was a shallow person. Those were her words, that he was a shallow person. She said, as a staff, and she was telling the students, she probably shouldn't have been telling the students this, but there we were sitting in class. She said, as a staff, we get together, and we have devotions in the morning, and we'll rotate who shares the devotion in the morning. And she said, I remember when he'd shared devotions. I remember thinking, that's so shallow. There isn't any meat there of a deep walk with God. And she says, I remember, she said, my daughter grew up at the same time he grew up, and they both went off to the same university, and my daughter decided to go off with some dates with him. She said, I remember my daughter calling home and saying that they had broken off their relationship. And I remember saying to her, honey, that's a good decision because he's a shallow boy and you can find better than him. And I remember that. Sometimes we don't want to hear what mom and dad have to say. We can look at a situation and think, oh, I know better. And the truth is, when when you fall in love and Cupid draws his arrow and strikes, sometimes clear-headed thinking can go out the window. And that's where godly parents, even godly seniors who are part of our life can hopefully with the wisdom of years and the knowledge of Scripture speak into us their wisdom and counsel. And hopefully we can come into a relationship knowing that we have mom and dads, we have the churches, we have grandma and grandpa's blessing. Now I know that doesn't always happen. And sometimes there's a marriage that God's fully affirming of that mom and dad aren't. Because we live in broken families, and I'm sorry if you found that to be true, but in the best of circumstances, our families, our parents are worth listening to. Listen to godly counsel, and then maybe you're sitting there and thinking, well, um, I'm not planning on getting married, and that doesn't necessarily apply to me, and I don't need mom and dad's advice on that, but some of us have children and grandchildren, and I think it would uh, this passage exhorts us to pray for their future spouses. Are you praying for who your children or grandchildren will marry? one of the commentators noted in this passage, he says, isn't it ironic when we meet Esau's first two wives in chapter 34, it just says, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Berai Bar- the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And we see that his parents had no influence. They spoke nothing into Esau's life from what we can see in the text. But when it comes Jacob's turn In chapter 28, verse 1, it says, So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. And his parents set him on the right course. One thing is that parents should set their children on the right course towards marriage. And one way we can do that is by praying for their future spouse. We may not know them. Maybe they will never marry and Scripture says singleness is as much to be desired as marriage is to be desired, according to the Apostle Paul, and that's fine. But if they do marry, are you praying for your grandkids, future spouses? Are you praying for your own kids, future husband, or future wife? Are you praying for that person who one day you'll be sitting at a Christmas dinner and think, wow, this is that person I've always wondered who they would be, and now here they are at the Christmas dinner table. Are you praying for them? I came across a story about Rhonda. Rhonda, when her son was born, her son Brandon, she had began praying for his future spouse. And as Brandon grew up, um, he loved music and loved to be in school plays and in church plays. And she remembers when he was in kindergarten. That he was in a school play one day, and when the play was done, he, you could see him standing there and on the platform as all the kids were bowing and everybody's clapping, and he's looking for his mom. He says, where's mom? Where's mom? And he finally found her. And so he started waving, and then he winked at her. And he five-year-olds don't always wink real well, and so he's waving at her, and he goes, and it's got a two-eyed blink at that point. But that kind of became tradition. As he grew up, he was quite the musician, and so he'd have recitals, music recitals, and he'd be in other performances and things. And after every performance, he'd go out there, and as he was little, he'd wave at mom, and as he got big enough and knew how to do it with one eye, he'd wink at mom, and she'd smile at him and wink back. And as he grew older and got into the high school years and continued to do recitals and to play and and eventually played in bands and was in orchestras and different things, he would be up there, but he'd always find mom. He'd scan the audience, find mom, look at her. And he got old enough that he stopped waving. He kept his arms down his side, but he'd look at her and he'd smile and he'd wink. And mom always looked for that wink. And it was precious to her to hold on to that. She said it kind of broke her heart when he grew up and went off to college and moved to states away, and all of a sudden, she couldn't go to every performance anymore. Every now and then, she could travel and see one, and if she was there and he knew that she had come to see the performance, that he might be in a school play, then uh, he would look for her, and during the performance, he would wink at her and smile. But most of the time, he had to perform without her. Well, while he was at school, as happens a lot of times in college, uh, he met a girl Uh, that he liked and they started dating. Her name was Jenny. And so he and Jenny, um, they were getting along and they were talking about marriage, but he was graduating. She still had school and he wasn't sure what to do. He had put out, application, his resume and applied at different places and he got hired to play with a Christian band out of Nashville. He was gonna go on tour with them and needed to move to Nashville and he realized it wasn't fair to Jenny to ask her to uproot herself and then move. And so he decided to call the relationship off. And so they broke off the relationship. He graduated, moved to Nashville, um, set up an apartment there, started touring with a Christian band, and um, was doing well. After about six months of touring, he decided to give Jenny a call and to see how she was doing. And he called, and, uh, and the phone call went wonderfully. And later he was telling his mom about it. He said, Mom, he said I called Jenny. And she said, You did? She said, I wondered if you might call, him again, call her again. She said, how'd the phone call go? And she, he said to her, said, mom, whenever I talk to her, I feel like I'm home. He said, well, that's a good feeling. Well, lo and behold, they started calling more frequently, writing letters back and forth, and lo and behold, they started dating again, and it wasn't long before they were engaged and got married and she moved to Nashville. He continued to tour with a band. When he was home on the weekends, he'd play in uh, the church worship team, and he'd be up front. And um, it so happened that one Sunday that he was up on the worship team up front playing. Jenny was out in the congregations, seated there, and a lady sat down behind Jenny. It was a lady who knew Jenny. It was a lady who knew Brandon. It was a lady who knew Brandon's mom, Rhonda, and had heard Rhonda share the story about how he grew up and would wink at her and how she had treasured that. The worship service was going on. They finished up the final set of songs. As they began to walk off, this friend who was seated behind Jenny Saw Brandon walk off, look back, smile, and wink. She whipped out her phone. She texted Rhonda and said, He now winks at, at Jenny every single time. And Rhonda said, I pulled out my phone that Sunday morning to see who had texted, and I looked at my friend's text, and I saw that my son was now winking at his new bride. And she said, The tears started to fill my eyes. She said, it wasn't sadness. It wasn't that I had been replaced. She said, I realized God had answered every prayer I had prayed since he was little to give my little Brandon a godly wife who would encourage him and love him and that he could cherish. And my heart was filled with joy. Some of us have kids and we have grandkids. Pray pray that God might give them a godly spouse, a healthy marriage, and a firm foundation to build a marriage on. Because the passage is simple. It tells us that faith must, and family should, affirm a spouse. Will you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, Lord, I pray. I pray for every person in our church, many of them young, But Lord, some are middle aged, some are seniors, and they will marry. And Lord, I pray that you will give them godly marriages, spouses who love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, that they will build a Christian home. And Lord, I pray that they might have the blessing of their families. And Lord, might they have the affirmation of Scripture to marry a godly woman or a godly man. Lord, I pray that this message today, that the young people here might tuck it away for the five years down the road or the ten years down the road, maybe 15 years down the road. And may they know that the person to look for is in the community of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Will you stand as we sing our closing song?